You are the master of your reality. This is even more true in relation to the government. Democracy doesn't just happen. It takes participation. Governments need participation and feedback from their citizens. Join Rob Hutchinson for Dear Parliament, where you get to understand the issues and engage directly with government. Dear Parliament is every Wednesday at midday, only on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Dear Parliament, the show in which I attempt to reveal the behind-the-scenes happenings in Parliament, the legislative process and in other matters of political interest to you. Well, it's great. It's certainly great to be back after taking a, a much-needed break. And wow, so much has happened, both locally and outside of South African borders, that it is, it's really difficult to, to keep up with all the happenings. Sometimes I feel as if um, uh, watching the world go by in fast-forward, almost like a, I'm watching a YouTube documentary played at double speed. So much information to process and so little time between events. And honestly, that has become a massive problem in identifying the truth or being able to identify the truth in uncovering misinformation and in separating fact from fiction. You know, when we are constantly bombarded with bad news and uh, constant snippets of information, they tend to provoke emotional responses. Our natural response is either fight or flight. As it stands right now, our minds are subjected to constant attack through social media, through television, and through traditional news. We are in a constant state of fear, and it's probably completely irrational, yet uh, it is totally real to us. We are in full panic mode, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our body and mind react accordingly. We run on adrenaline and respond almost almost on instinct without any hesitance or pause for thought. We then unfortunately succumb to groupthink, to the mob mentality, and of course, to authority without question. Certainly dangerous times indeed. Perhaps it's time to switch off those devices, to disconnect from social media and notice the world through our own two eyes. In fact, here's a challenge to you. Unplug yourself from social media and the news for only one week. It's just one week, and I guarantee you'll be a happier person. Now, seriously, I challenge you to do this. And perhaps let us know your experience or, or how your experience is or was. After your, after your one-week break, that is, of course, if you're able to make it that far, send us an email to onair at highfm.com. Or send us an SMS to 34519 by next Wednesday morning. And I'll be sure to mention you in the show next week. Really, it's only one week. and You can do it. Now, one, one profession that is well accustomed to, to being under constant pressure to decipher fact from fiction and uncover the hidden truth is undoubtedly the forensic auditing community. There are those brave individuals who have an incredible ability and, of course, patience 
to travel through thousands of pages of financial documents, of accounts and spreadsheets to produce court-ready evidence of fraud and corruption. And obviously, this is all done in the hope that you know, perpetrators of white-collar crime and corruption will be brought to book. Not always the case. Now, forensic, forensic accounting is described as the science of gathering and presenting financial information in a form that will be accepted by a court of jurisprudence against perpetrators of economic crime. Highly specialized teams are often made up of individuals with a unique ability to apply their financial skills with an investigative mentality uh, to unresolved issues. And of course, they have to have a keen understanding of legal processes and the relevant rules of, of evidence. We've all heard of such specialized teams in South Africa. I'm talking, of course, about the Scorpions and, and the Hawks. Names we are all quite familiar with, yet don't really know much about at all. Uh, these these uh, specialized, specialized units have been uh, successful in uncovering corruption in the public and in the private sector. Well, you know, have they been? It is certainly a, a topic of debate. However, their process and their method methodology is often hampered by bureaucratic hurdles, and, of course, political interference, which is an issue my guest will be revealing in a few minutes. Just how, just how big of an interference does the state and the various players within the ranks have on, in, on investigators, on the outcomes, on the reports and successful prosecutions? Well, we shall find out in, in a moment. Uh, also, another question we should be asking is, is the private sector more capable of bringing perpetrators to book than the state uh, state entities are? Well, don't go anywhere. And in a few minutes, I'll be chatting to Keith Flack, who is a top forensic auditor uh, with over 20 years experience from the Nardis Band of Scorpions to the Hawks and also in the private sector. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. And as I was saying before the break, we have a fantastic guest today, and that is uh, Keith Flack, who was a forensic auditor for the Hawks and for the uh, now disbanded Scorpions. And he's going to reveal to us some rather interesting insights. Uh, behind the scenes happening, some uh, troubles and often hurdles that, that he did encounter. Um, but perhaps let me introduce. Good day, Keith. How are you doing? Good afternoon, Keith. Huh? Good afternoon. How are things going there? It's fine, thanks. It is good. Fantastic, fantastic. So welcome welcome to the show, Keith. And I was introducing you there and giving a brief history of, of what the what forensic auditing and accounting is all is all about. Perhaps give us a bit more in, in depth as to exactly what is involved, what a forensic auditor does and perhaps the challenges that you face in, in your profession. Okay, I think it's probably better to refer to forensic accountants rather than forensic auditors. Because, you know, as a forensic accountant, you know, I prefer to deal with the facts because, you know, an auditor expresses an opinion normally on a set of financial statements or some financial information. 
While as a forensic accountant, we need to be totally objective, we set out the facts very clearly. I think the strength of forensic accountants, they can often take vast amounts of information and distill it very, very nicely into a brief, concise, objective forensic accounting report that the prosecutor can use. And that they can be very useful in like identifying the nature of the fraud, the extent of the fraud, when it started, when it ended, how many instances of the fraud took place, and the RAND value, and the modus operandi that the fraudster used. And as a result of hopefully a brief report, uh, the prosecutor is in a good position to draw up a charge sheet with counts and things like that, you know? That's, that's fantastic. And I think the key there is vast amounts of information. We've been, we've been battling with an overflow of, of information uh, lately. So much happening and so little time to process it. How do you deal, how do you distill all that information into into an understandable piece of, of or I suppose you make a story out of it. How, how do you distill all the information into, into a comprehensive story? I think the important thing is to focus on, you know, what is relevant. Like, for example, in a factoring fraud scan that I worked on at one stage, what was relevant is how much security did the finance uh, factory house have? And when they discovered the fraud, say, for example, they thought they had 28 million rands worth of security Meanwhile, and based on their 28 million rand of security, they advanced their 23 million rand, and only 5 million rand was recoverable. So they would involve saying, we thought we had 28 million rand of security. Why didn't we have 28 million rand of security? And there would be a case then of saying, of that 28 million rand, why was it irrecoverable? So the prosecutor could actually understand it, you know, sort of thing. You know, rather than give them like, 20 lever arts files comprising like bank statements. It's one of them may be relevant, but we need to focus on the core issues, I think. You know? Definitely. I think that's very important when it comes to actually presenting what uh, the evidence towards a, an accusation or a suspected crime. Often, and I agree with you there, often judges don't quite understand um, the processes or anything else. So they rely on experts and experts and experts' opinions such, such as yourself to actually distill that information into uh, sort of something the um, layman could even understand, not, not, not just the judge. What are the, what are the most in, uh, sort of biggest challenges that, that you have had? You have an extensive a history over the past 20 years in both the uh, Hawks and the Scorpions, you must have come across some rather interesting uh, state prosecutions there, or even private prosecutions, and um, without mentioning any names. But what what is your your most your biggest challenges there? I think my biggest challenge in the police was and in the Scorpions was trying to set up like an effective forensic accounting team, because as a forensic accountant, you sort of like you know perhaps you can say you like the architect. You know, you design the building but you need like plumbers, electricians and all those other people to actually make the building. And it was very, very difficult to try to convince management within the different organisations that you actually needed, say, for example, a good analyst who could, uh, under my direction, say, this is what I want you to extract. Please put it onto an Excel spreadsheet. And what also would have been handy would, and also once you've finished everything, they need to scan everything like with a high-speed scanner 
So it's readily available. You know, rather than take leverage files, you just you can get everything to the sense on a memory stick. And uh, a secretary would also have been very nice because you could have trained up a secretary to go through the docket and sort of identify, you know, I've got a sort of a, a sort of draft template for a forensic accounting report. And she could start populating a lot of that, you know, sort of thing. You know, similar to like the partner doesn't do everything in, a, in the outside firm of forensic accountants. He's got people underneath him who do a lot of it. And then he simply reviews their work. And if they did something similar like that, we could actually get matters a lot, lot, lot quicker before court than we currently do. You know, because as I said, if you had a forensic accountant at each major centre with a good analyst, uh, a good secretary, and maybe an investigating officer that could help the investigating officer responsible for that particular case, who also may have like five, 20, you know, may have another 20 other dockets, he could assist that investigating officer in like menial but very necessary tasks, such as obtaining bank statements, requesting the bank to supply them in Excel, things like that, you know? No? Absolutely. And then it definitely does boil down to a, a, a limit on resources that would actually help you come to a good conclusion and present the facts in, in a timeliest manner. And of course, it's down to skills as, as well. And we often have to wonder why these cases take, take so long. And what I'm picking up, it's definitely due, due to those cumbersome processes. Yeah, there seems to be a significant amount of, of white collar crime that does happen in South Africa. But the, nothing seems to be really done about it. A lot of it, how high net worth individuals get away with this, political figures who are involved, nothing ever seems to happen uh, to these people. What could we do to to deal with um, white collar crime? What what are the processes that, that you have in mind? Well, look, look, part of the problem also does lie with all due respect in defence counsel, because, you know, in terms of our constitution, section 35, the accused has uh, the right to a fair trial. And, of course, defence lawyers will uh, make the maximum use of this particular section in the Constitution. But, uh, you know, white-collar crime actually can be dealt with a lot quicker because it's just a case of getting all the information together, presenting it nicely in a forensic accounting report that the prosecutor understands. And that's why I'm saying it's, it's a lot better if you actually had in-house forensic accountants within, like, the police and the hawks and things like that. Because often, as a case unravels, well, as a case develops, it's very, very difficult. At the moment, when they do outsource, the outsourced company normally has to give a budget, and that budget has to be approved. And the problem often is that the exception of the case, you don't really know that much about it. You know a fraud's been committed, but you don't know how deep you've got to deep, uh, how deep you've got to dig, rather. So it would be far better actually having CAs within the organization with, I'd say, that minimum staffing requirement. You know, I use the analogy, you know, doctors need hospitals. Hospitals rather need doctors, you know. Nurses are very, very important, but they also need doctors. And I think that is the problem. You know, the poor investigating officer is very good at that particular aspect, but he's not very good at analyzing all that information and presenting it in a nice report that the prosecutor can actually understand and use to prepare a charge sheet. Yeah, that does definitely so seem I, I to be a, a problem, problem in the state. I, I don't know why the mm-hmm. government is so slow 
in actually employing forensic accountants. You know, it's, um, I'm quite sure there are a lot of chartered accountants out there who understand business and would be more than willing to, to work for the government because another problem is if you outsource it, for example, the Audi charge-out rate with the Auditor General, say for a CA with eight years' experience, something like um, 2,400 rand plus that every hour, so this gentleman worked on that case for an entire month, but it cost you 447,000 rand, or something like 5.4 million per annum. So, you know, mm. you could probably employ adequate CAs with the current job market, say at 1.3 million, and give them an analyst, give them a secretary, tell them not to get involved in uh, meetings because they're actually like doctors. They're actually like specialists, they're not managers. And their job is to produce a quarterly forensic accounting report as soon as possible, you know, subject to the information being available. So, you know, I, I really don't understand why there's such a problem in engaging such people for a minimum capital, for a minimum outlay in terms of HR. And in terms of capital, all they need is a high-speed scanner, a photocopier and an office. And just so get on with it, please. You know? <laughs> and of course, the the will to actually do it and and take it right through to to prosecution, that that might be a, an an influencing factor as well. But you you correct there. I mean, we look at instances like the Zondo Commission and additional expenditure, which the taxpayer obviously has to has to cover, of over a billion rand, or just on that on that commission. So you raise an excellent point there. Why did we have to spend extra on that? Why doesn't the state have this, these skills and this competency in-house and already on a salary structure when it wouldn't require an, an extra budget? I, I suppose the same happens throughout all, all the police services, which is why we might see such a low prosecution rate. It's all budget-related, isn't it, Keith? Where we can we can only prosecute certain high-profile cases that are going to be rewarding, and and so on. Yet we seem to get rid of a lot of the smaller cases, or ignore them, or just push push them aside. A constant problem in the state is is outsourcing uh, quite quite a big thing. Is there a is there a definite shift from from the public, uh, from the public into uh, into the private sector, is is it worthwhile? Should we be seeing more of this? Well, look, I mean, we've got doctors in state hospitals, you know. So, I mean, doctors are pretty clever people that have gone through a rigorous training at varsity, and I mean, the state just needs to employ more ethical, competent people. It works out to be far more cost-effective because. You said you're working with the investigating officers and the prosecutors all the time. It's just a case of popping into their office, showing their work in progress thing, or are they happy with the way the investigation's going? You know, in the Scorpions, we used to talk about prosecution-guided investigation. And prosecution-guided is a lot better concept than prosecution-led, because prosecution-led assumes that the prosecutor knows everything, which uh, obviously doesn't in terms of a multidisciplinary team environment. But a prosecution-led environment is very, very useful because obviously at the end of the day, it's no use investigating if you don't get a cheap at the end of the day, you know. So uh, I just battle to see, you know, there's a horrible definition of a consultant. It's a consultant to, a uh, consultant is somebody who you give him the watch and then you've got to pay him when you want to know what the time is, you know, which is a little <laughs> confusing. <laughs> but that is true, you know. 
you know. So I, I don't know. Look, I mean, prosecutors are very clever people, and the state has got a lot of them. I don't know why we can't get enough chartered accountants in us, to be quite frank. You know, yeah, I just I really yeah. can't see the problem. And um, t- tell us a bit more about the whole the whole process. Is how how you how you get alerted to a a case, um, the information that that you get, and the investigative process that you go through, right through to handing handing over that that comprehensive report to whoever you handed out over to. Okay, look, I, I dealt with a fraud case quite recently, and it was just a case of going to the client, finding the source document. We were quite lucky in that particular case because we had the fraudsters. In that particular case, the bank was able to supply us with fraudsters who used like three different bank accounts. So the bank was able to say, look, from this date to that date, so much was transferred into those bank accounts. So right at the outset, we could quantify the fraud, the amount of the fraud, and when it started and when it ended. Then I would come along and identify what was her modus operandi. Like, for example, this uh, lady, was what she was doing, uh, she would like put through her correct salary through the payroll, but then put her grossly inflated salary through the bankrupt, you know. So she would be clearing, say, 10K through the payroll, which the auditors looked at, but in the bank run, which actually cost the organization company money, she'd be paying herself like 45,000 rand. And then, so what would be useful for me, I would, so first I've identified how much is the fraud. And I think it's very, very useful to identify what is the fraudster's modus operandi, you know? Because often fraudsters, they may change their modus operandi as time goes on. So this lady initially inflated her salary, then she started putting through spurious creditors. Then she started saying she was transferring funds from the investment from the current account to the investment account. Meanwhile, it was going to her account. So I think you know that, that, that that's useful. You know, it, it makes it a lot lot richer rather than just talking about their numbers. Definitely, I mean, when I, definitely. You know, I normally, like in my forensic accounting report, I normally have a section saying, you know, who I am. Uh, it's been it's very important that. Forensic accountant is totally objective. He's not like an advocate. He's not an advocate of the client. He's just totally objective. He just gives the, the court the facts so the judge can make an informed decision. And then you normally give a, a bit of a background saying, like, who's you in the zoo? You know, the suspects are who the complainant is. Then you have sort of like your annexures, which are basically like Excel spreadsheets. And those Excel spreadsheets need to be supported by admissible exhibits. So in other words, say if there's a crucial document where a person lied on, you've got to say refer to exhibit 01005, and that is supported by an affidavit from another person to make it admissible. Then I normally have like a modus operandi section and finding that modus operandi. How did the person commit the fraud? Then I'd have a small finding section, and then I'd have a summary right at the end. And hopefully my reports are like less than 15 pages long, a lot shorter than the Zondo Commission, which I think is over 1,500 pages. Obviously, it's it's a lot bigger sort of thing. I appreciate that. But there's a lovely acronym uh, acronym thanks to old Joseph Pulitzer. Keep something brief so they'll actually read it, clear that they'll understand it, accurate that they'll be guided by its light, and picturesque that they'll remember it. And that's sort of how I like to group it. 
know. That's absolutely brilliant, and that's exactly how everything should be. The more simple something is, the easier it is for a judge to understand, and the easier it is for them to make a, a decision on it. But as long as it obviously contains contains the fact, the facts, and as as they are presented, and you know, you mentioned something that was that was quite interesting as well. And that's the bank transfers. There's always a paper trail of money moving from one point to another, unless, of course, it's in a in a brown envelope or or in a big black plastic bag, which is which is more rare than than people actually think. Why then is it uh, so difficult for the state to actually spot state corruption when there's a clear paper trail of of everything? There's orders that are put in, and it's always seems to be in procurement where, where these things happen and tenders are awarded irregularly or, or money is transferred to fictitious entities or so on. Yet there's always a paper trail, yet nothing seems to happen. Any ideas what the reason for that is? Sorry, I didn't catch the, the last uh, comment. Any ideas why why that happens, why the state is unable to pick up these I really don't paper know because, you know, with commercial crime, it's it's not like a burglary or stock theft. You know, to crack those sort of criminal activities, you need good intelligence. To crack a lot of commercial crime just requires good analysis. Let's get all the information, analyze it nicely. We see the fraudsters, modus operandi, and let's just get out a report ASAP. You know, I really, I, I don't see what the problem is. I mean, like, just in state hospitals, why they can't employ more doctors, I don't know. You know, but <laughs> you know, just, just employ some, for, just employ chartered accountants let them go on a training course, the importance of being objective and deadly accurate. And I think if you've got 20 CAs with a good analyst, good secretary, gave them an office and said, let's go for it, I'm sure things would happen a lot quicker, you know? Uh, I think when the government can spend, when they want to give 50 million rand to Cuba, for example, when they can employ quite a few forensic accountants and doctors, so that's sort of enough, which would definitely help. I mean, a good example maybe that I think mean, it's very, very sad when we see a lot of like infrastructure developments. I remember reading in the paper a few years ago about a lady, well, it's a very simple request. She just simply wanted running water in her house. I mean, what a simple request is that? And there was a picture of a half-completed um, storage tank. Now, I'm saying that would be quite easy. You know, What was the contractor paid? Why didn't he finish the job? Please explain. You know, now, I mean, that's not rocket scientists. Because the last thing with government is at least everything has got to go from the government department's bank account to somebody else's bank account. And let's see what he did with that money when it went into his bank account. Exactly. Exactly. Sounds so simple, yet seems to be so, so complicated. Now, let, we'll, we'll definitely continue this, this chat in a moment, and I'd love to find out more about I'm battling to hear you. Yeah, sure. Sorry, might be thinking at your connection there. We're going to take a quick break, and I'd like to chat definitely more about the private sector versus the the government sector and the the challenges there and the rewards and so on. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. Welcome back, Keith. Been great chatting to you so far, and. The stories and and interesting insights and challenges that you face are certainly uh, magnificent. Now, what what is the the difference between the private sector and, and the public sector? I know you've moved from 
from the the uh, scorpions through to the hawks, the zaps, and now you're in your own own private practice. What what brought about that change? So I, I don't quite understand the question. What? So you're talking about what private sector corruption now? Or what? You know? No, no, no. Your your move from from the uh, public sector into the private sector. What what brought about that change? Why did you move out of the zaps, the hawks, and and so uh, on into, uh, into uh, private? Is, okay, I was uh, 56 at the time, and in January 2016, I got a letter from head office saying uh, you need to relocate to Pretoria at no cost to the state. And uh, that was January 2016. I went on stress leave for two months and didn't hear a word from anybody. Said, you know, I can't relocate to Pretoria. I'm four years away from retirement. I've got to be where the action is, where the complainants are, where the prosecutors are, where the investigating officers are. It's just not practical for a forensic accountant, say, in uh, Pretoria to investigate or cost-effective to investigate a crime in Durban. You have to be where the action is, you know. And unfortunately, you know, it was like talking to a brick wall. Uh, They threatened not to pay me in September. Uh, when I went up there for a meeting and I asked for like a person's details, he refused to give me his details. And my immediate superior like, totally ignored me um, all my requests for leave. But then when I said I was going to resign, uh, he replied within 15 minutes to say, cool, okay, no problem. So I enjoyed what I was doing, but it was a case of health before the house, unfortunately. And my wife worked. Uh, you know, I left. You know, I enjoyed what I was doing, and I thought I'd make a big contribution because the police uh, do need forensic accountants. Uh, I think the Hawks have now employed a major general in charge of the organisation, and I believe they've also got a few people from internal audit. But I'm, I'm not up to speed as far as what's currently happening in the Hawks. Sort of thing. So, um, but you know, I think the, the problem often people face is. You know, those of us who are fortunate enough to be on a medical aid can go to a private doctor and the problem can be sorted out, which means it's very, very sad for victims of crime if they can't uh, afford to pay me. I mean, I'm very cost-effective. I'm not very expensive. But to actually, like, investigate crime. I mean, one case that I was doing with been sitting with the IO for, like, a year or so, it was only when I got involved that things started happening. You know, I mean, no disrespect to the investigating officer at all, just doesn't have the resources to do what I can do with you know, my team. So, you know, that's basically the reason why I left this thing. You know, hopefully that clarifies the situation. You know, I don't want to bad mouth anybody, you know, so yeah. <laughs> no, of course, you don't don't a bad mouth anybody, especially in 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 that field. Suddenly, there'll be a, a a special investigation unit knocking on on your door, um, trying to dig up dig up some dirt. I have no doubt about that. But it definitely you it, you've raised the point that does seem to become or come up quite often, and that is of of state resources. We've even seen. Uh, government cutting cutting the budgets of of the SAPs and and so on and associated units, and that really doesn't make any sense when they should be increasing these budgets and employing competent people such as such as yourself and accommodating those those people so they can actually do their do their correct jobs. Keith, it's been absolutely well, I think wonderful. Well, I mean, I mean, the core function mm-hmm. of the police is very simple: it's prevent, combat, investigate crime. 
It's not there to protect VIPs. Now, I read in the paper that the VIP budget has gone up. It was a few billion, something stupid like that. But, I mean, other budgets get yeah. cut. And, I mean, our core functions prevent, combat, investigate crime, not employ, not, not protect VIPs. Let's get our priorities right. Let's be public servants and not public rulers. And then maybe we can make a difference to this beautiful country of ours. That is an excellent, excellent point. And I think something that all our politicians, no matter which party they're from, should actually take note of. And that is, they are public servants, not public rulers. It is an absolutely brilliant point, which which I think resonates really, 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 really well. Keith, that's I think it's been absolutely one, wonderful one, talking to you. And, mm, just one thing. Anything else you want to say? Yeah. Just, no, my, my closing comment would be, it was... Um, a little sign I saw an investigating officer's job at uh, war, and it's so true. It says your job gives you authority, your behavior gives you respect. Wow. Your, your job gives, gives you authority, respect. you're a big cheese because you've got that position, but whether I respect you depends a lot on your behavior. And I think that is the serious problem that we have in the public service at the moment. They do not lead by example, unfortunately, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's—I think, I think it's right throughout the public sector, right through our politicians, and displayed clearly in in our parliamentary processes. Keith, best of luck with everything you're doing. You're an asset to to society. The, the work that you've done is absolutely fantastic, and I hope to see that you get many more successes and and make a huge difference in, in the country. I thank you so much for your time. Okay, all the best. And thank you for the opportunity. Okay. Thank you. Absolutely. And that, that brings us to the end of, of our show for today. It was a rather interesting one. If you if you missed it, be sure to catch up with the podcast, which is available on Spotify and on our website at www.highfm.com. And while you're there, have a look at previous episodes, download them, take a listen to them, do do what you want. There's some really good good stuff happening there. And don't forget to take a break for a week from social media and the news and send us your experience by next Wednesday morning. I thank you for your time and remember to stay democratic, engaged, active and responsible. Ciao for now.